0: Okay. All right. Here we go. Gideon chapter uh, uh, 8 today. This is going to be our next lesson in Gideon. We've been right here in Israel. You see that little dot? The history of the world turns around that one little dot. It's pretty fascinating. If you read world history over and over again, it comes back to Israel where God started everything. So last week we went through the battle of Gideon where we had the 300 that battled the 135,000 men. That took place right up here in the edge of Mount Mora um, in the valley that was right there and if you'll recall Gideon went up there at night they got around about a hundred feet apart these 300 guys they had a, a clay pitcher in one hand they had a, a, a light a, a torch that was in that thing and they had a trumpet. They blew their shofar they, they sh- uh, shouted to the, the, of the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they attacked. This is uh, something of the shofar. I was reminded that I keep saying that, and nobody may have seen those before. This is what that looks like. It's a, it's a goat horn, and uh, you just polish up the one end. Turn the reverb down, sir. And you, you polish up the one end and blow in that thing, and it makes a big uh, uh, noise. And the most important thing when you blow in these is don't inhale. Because it is an old goat horn, and it smells like old dead goat. And bleh, bleh. I, I tried that. Here's one of the shofars blowing. This is what they would have done outside the camp, and made that great big old racket, and uh, and then the people started killing each other. Now, what we what where we got last week was down to the ford. So I, I'm struggling with the timeline here a little bit. I think this all took place in one night, but it almost seems impossible, like it would be a miracle. Of course, 300 guys killed 135,000, so maybe it was just God, but I'm going to run through the timeline as we go and and show you the way that this might have happened. So here we, we know that the fight was right after the middle watch of the night, which would have been at, starting at 10 o'clock. So the battle, the, the pitchers broke sometime around hour 1030, 1015, that they blew the trumpets and that the battle started. I I gave it an hour for 120,000 guys to kill each other because they're moving in from all sides and they compress and start going down. And then I figure about another hour for their 20-mile run south to make it to the Ford. Now, I came up with that because of Poplar Mechanics. They had uh, camel speed. I I don't know why they have that. But, um, But if you're racing a camel, which is extremely uncomfortable, camels stink to ride on. So if you're racing a camel it goes up to about 40 miles an hour but for an average speed of 20 plus miles popular mechanic popular Mechanics says 25 miles per hour so if we figure that it's about 25 miles per hour they're about an hour away you can imagine the run during the night remember last last week uh we talked about where they took off from up there and they came down to this ford and, they, and then they called the Canaanites, I mean, I'm sorry, the, uh, for the Ephraims. And Ephraim came down and blocked the ford before the uh, guys could all get across it. In the meantime, they killed the two princes. Here is how we finished up last week, Judges 7:24. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Beth and Jordan, and all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. That was on the map there uh, where you saw the, uh, the um, red X, and it says they took the two princes of Midian, of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb, and, Zeb, and they slew Oreb upon the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, On the other side, Jordan. So at this point, uh, Jordan had already been crossed by Gideon. He's already headed back up to Succoth, up the valley. And the the guys from Ephraim come down from the mountains. They had captured the two princes who had gotten separated from the king. So imagine, if you will, the 135,000 guys. We figure they're in a 200-acre stretch. They cram into each other. They're fighting. It's at night. They're grabbing whatever camel is close by. They're throwing some gear on it. They've run 25 miles on these camels where it's just, you know, this awful ride. They make it down to the river. The, the, everybody's kind of scattered. The princes go one way, the kings go the other. Ephraim kills the two princes, brings their head in a saddlebag. This is not a Disney story. It's kind of kind of gross, but he, they bring the two heads of the two princes back across Jordan over to where Gideon and his, his army is headed up to Succoth. And that is where we ended last week. So that was our, our our review. Let's pray, Father. Um, thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, for what a good God you are, for your holiness and righteousness. And Lord, I pray you would open the Word to us this morning, that we would uh, be changed by it, Lord. That we would not be one that sees His face in His mirror and goes His way forgetting, but Lord, that we are adjusted by You and by Your Spirit. I pray You'd help me get out of the way and for us to see what you're doing what you've done and what you're going to do by your mighty hand and your mighty grace in jesus name amen okay gideon part nine i mean judges part nine gideon part five we've camped out here in gideon for a while and we won't get to finish this week judges chapter eight verse one and the men of ephraim said unto him why hast thou served us thus that thou callest us not when thou wentest to fight with the midianites and they did chide with him sharply And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered unto your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison to you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he said that. Now consider this story and how this could have gone different this really impacted me this week we think of righteousness and right as being the same thing and they aren't always now before you freak out let me explain myself the the, the, the guys from Ephraim come down the mountain and they meet uh, Gideon and Gideon is, is headed back up he's run all night and uh and his, his camel's sweaty his men are sore they've got saddle sores they're they're chasing and these guys catch up with them and they've got the two heads and what what does Ephraim say they say how dare you how dare you go to battle without letting us know and you know this is Ephraim they did this again in chapter 12 if you remember and 43,000 of them end up getting killed because they do this again but they come down and they go how dare you do this without calling me first now if If I'm answering this, right, and I'm Gideon, and I go, Goober, I put a call out. The Midianites knew that God had called me when I went into their camp. They knew it. How did you not know it? I would say, Hey, Goober, you know, what is your issue here? What is your problem? I have been doing this all night long. You know why you got the two princes? Because I got the 135,000 other guys out of the way. You know what? And you know what gideon wouldn't have been wrong right he he would have been correct in that how about how about he goes a religious route he goes brothers i i realize this but every once in a while god picks a particular man and and who can say why you know it's a man that's debonair and and uh you know amazing and and go this route and and point to, to himself and say look god chose me i'm the one that god picked and said you're the guy and, and don't talk to me, talk me about it, tell God you're not appreciative of this. You know, if Ephraim would have been worthy, God would have picked Ephraim, right? I mean, he could have said that. He could have done that and been right. You understand, he could have been correct. He could have been used all truth and cut them to the bone and said, you were not worthy and I was. He could have said that you weren't there when you should have been and I was. He could have said that i was i was out there trusting god when you were in your beds tonight and he'd have been right but gideon chose to go a different route he chose to say oh brothers you know what have i got next to you i mean I, i'm chasing a bunch of guys on camels and my camel stinks here you're you're you've got the heads of the princes i mean look you already took out the royalty you're you you're so awesome the gleaning of grapes, that means after that you've already picked your grapes and done all of that you've got, you're, just your leftovers are better than what we've got up there in the mountains. Ephraim, just kind of arrogant guys. Huh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of those guys. Okay, and and he pacified him, and and they were comfortable with that, and he went on. There's a great lesson in here for us. A soft answer, the scripture says. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. Solomon likes to contrast in the book of Proverbs. He likes to show two sides of a thing. And he says, here's the two sides. The wise person uses knowledge right, and the, fool pours out, the, 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 the fools pour out foolishness. He doesn't necessarily say that what they're pouring out isn't right. He says they're not doing it right. What they're doing isn't right. The wise man will do it correctly. Now, how does this work? You know, if, if you step into an argument between a husband and a wife, don't ever do that, okay? But if you step into an argument between the husband and the wife, and you ask them for the information that's at odds here, right? So, okay, wait, 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 you guys are arguing. You step over here, you step over here. What's wrong? Well, he put the cup in the wrong cabinet. Okay, so you go over to the husband. Well, what's wrong? She's nagging me. Okay, well, this is a weird fight. I mean, can you imagine, like, me and Gil over here, you know? Gil, you you put the transit on the wrong shelf, and Gil's like, well, stop nagging me about it. And, And you don't do that. Why? Because there's goodwill because we have a rapport and, and we don't have these expectations and, and we can have a discussion without it turning into a fight where sometimes when you're close to people, you, you take information, knowledge. Was he supposed to use a different cabinet? Yeah, he was. Yeah, that's not where the cup goes. So he could have accepted that. And was she, was she supposed to be, okay, just move the cup? That was easier than a two-hour argument? Yeah, that would have been easier. But you can take the truth and use it to harm. You can use it to hurt somebody. We do this in our families. We do this when when you find out something that was wrong or that was done wrong, and you can point to it for 10 years. You remember that time that you and point to that and use that to hurt? Friends, we do this in our churches. We know our friends and our families from churches better than anywhere, and we find out information. We go, well, I'm not going to gossip. Rather, I'm going to just tell the truth. You know, we hurt people with the truth. We hurt our friends and our families. And that's not what God asks of us. He says to use knowledge aright. But we can take knowledge that's true and correct and we can use that to excoriate and hurt somebody. The scripture's not calling us to just not say the truth. The scripture's calling us to say the truth in love. You understand the difference. Corinthians one8 one 8.1, 8, I'm sorry. First Corinthians uh, eight one says now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Paul uses contrast again. He says, Listen, we all know that we shouldn't eat things offered to idols. Paul goes, We we know this stuff about idolatry, right? But he said, that's great. That's easy. Knowing the truth is easy. But he says that knowledge, knowing the truth, can puff you up. You can get arrogant about it. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? There were some people that were dead because they were arrogant about somebody else's sin. They were puffed up about it. But he says, but charity edifieth. You know, the, when, when you read the, uh, chapter 13 about charity, about God's love, agape love, he says, you know, that love is patient and kind, and that love covers a multitude of sins, that, it, that it, it, it smooths over and fixes things. You know that not every time that somebody offends you that you have to call them to repentance? Now, if there's sin, if there's actual sin, and you love your brother, then, then there's going to be a time that you have to, to show, okay, this is sin, and we need repentance. We need it now. But you know, not every time that somebody is offensive... You know, if you park in where I wanted to park, I don't have to call a meeting and ask for your repentance. Or if you scuff up the yard or break the door in the office, or I might call a meeting in. If, 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 if you do something that's not kind and, and that I say I don't appreciate, I don't have to call for repentance. I don't have to because it's okay as long as you and I can still be brothers in Christ and enjoy each other's company then God can, can work through that. Now, that's the same in marriage. You know, you can, you can be right, you can be correct, and you can shut your mouth. You know that? That's one of the most important tools in the marriage toolbox is, is, is when you're, you know, you're turning and you know that's the way and she says it's not the way and you know it is the way, turns out it wasn't the way. If she can just say, eh, that's fine, no problem, and 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 let that go. And if we could do that the way Gideon did, then we would have a lot more peace. A few chapters later, after Gideon, somebody couldn't do that, and it killed forty-three thousand people. Corinthians chapter uh, for Second Corinthians chapter ten verse twelve, for we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Paul said. It's going to be easy to look around at your brothers and sisters and say, I'm better than that dude. I'm better than that lady. I'm, I'm somehow higher or elevated or, more, or not more knowledgeable. And he says, listen, that's not wise. What you need to do is look at God. Continuing on, 1017. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. He says, well, if you look around and you see your brothers and sisters and you say, I'm doing this better than they are. I'm, I've got this whole soft answer down better than he does. God says, that's not wise. That's not right. He says, listen, stop looking around at everybody else and wait and let me approve of your actions. You know, if we did this in our marriages, if we did this when we were driving to the other drivers, right? That idiot's going slower than me and this other moron's going faster than me. Everybody should go exactly my speed and no different because I'm the only one that's right. You know, I mean, that's our attitude. And, and the scripture says, stop comparing yourselves. Now, I know that that wasn't the, the connotation here, but, but it flo- that's who we are, friends. We look around and we go, everybody else is doing this wrong except me. And I'm the one that's got it right. And the scripture says, stop doing that. Answer softly and answer with love. Let's look at God. What, what is his attribute here? J- uh, uh, Psalms 147, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God for it is pleasant and praise is comely the lord doth build up jerusalem he gathereth together the outcast of israel he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds you know we we have an amazing god david says that god comes to jerusalem the city that has fought against him more than any any other people group that he's adopted like this he's they've just been they've been so arrogant over and over with his overwhelming love and grace. Look at Nineveh. They repented quickly. That's why Christ said it would be better in, in, uh, for, the, for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for, for Jerusalem because they just, having all that light and knowledge, reject God over and over again. But what does he say? It says he builds up Jerusalem and gathers the outcast, the ones that have rejected. He just brings them back, and it says that he healed The broken heart. You know, if we use knowledge like God does, and we find out that so-and-so's got an issue with alcohol or got an issue in his marriage or got an issue with with stealing stuff, and we go and the sin is corrected, right? We go and say, hey, that's, that's wrong. Okay, yeah, let's get that right before the Lord. Now we know something about them. You know, we can use that when we're mad at them and talking to somebody else. We can use that to do hurt to them the truth we can use the truth to create pain and to do hurt but you know what else we can use the truth for to heal and to bind up their wounds if we know what's going on in their life we can cover for them the bible says love covereth because you have charity because you have god's love and you go my brother's got a weakness here and i'm going to take up the slack for that weakness i'm going to go and i'm going to i'm going to take care i'm going to love on him i know he's got a rough go at home right now. Him and his wife are fighting and so instead of going over and going, hey, <laughs> check them out man, They're you see how they're looking at each other instead we go up and go, hey brother I just want you to know man, I love you I love you and and you know what you're such an encouragement to me because of, and, and name something, and then go to the sister, sister, man your dress is beautiful today you look wonderful, you are you the way that you raise your kids, find something that you can encourage and bless instead of going, heh <laughs> heh yeah, we're not doing that. Me, me and my wife, yeah, we're getting along great. You see the difference? That's a great lesson out of Gideon. Psalms forty-seven four continues on about God. It says, he telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our God of great power. His understanding is infinite. David says to all the nitty-gritty, dirty garbage about you, he knows it. He knows the names of the stars. He knows the worst things that you've ever done. And you know what he's going to do? Bind up the hurts. He's going to bind up the hurts. He's going to heal and, and bring healing to the broken heart, to the one that's just, ah just hurts. David says, you know, David sinned against God. David did some bad stuff. And you know what God did? He healed David, a man after God's own heart. That's the way we can walk. Lamentations 322. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, bless the name of the Lord. He says, listen, I know everything about you, every dirty thing you've done. And the reason that you're not consumed is because I have mercy. Because I... what if we did this in our marriage? What if you knew some bad stuff that your husband or your wife has done and you say, you know what, I love you. I have mercy. And, and every morning you wake up with this, this word in your mouth, I love you. I want to bind up your hurts. I want to be a blessing to you. Instead of, well, you're having a bad day, so shut up and go in the other room until you fix your attitude. You know, that's the way. What if God did that to us? What if, God, what if instead you go, you know what, I understand that you're hurting and lashing out at me, and that's okay. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. Husbands, I've got a word for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also has loved the church. How does he love it? Because his mercy that we're not consumed. You know, when your wife is untoward and acts in a way that is not appropriate, now you can act like the Lord. Now you can put on the attributes of God, and extend mercy. You know, when she's lovely and sweet and having a, uh, uh, just a good rapport together, you don't get to do this. You only get to do this when, when there's conflict and you get to, instead of having the truth that hurts, you cover that and bind that and bless that. This, this mattered to me this week. I, I studied this and this was something that adjusted me. And so I shared it with you. Okay, a hard lesson now. Judges chapter 8 verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over he and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalminia, kings of Midian. So here comes Gideon, and he, he's riding up this valley, and and as he's as he's coming up this valley, he comes to this little town of Succoth right there. As he's as he's going up to chase after the the Midianites, and fifteen thousand Midianites have just come through here. Now, if you've ever been in a small town and on like a street, and fifteen thousand people come through, everybody knows it. Okay, it's not it's not like you're in Chicago. It, this is a little town on the on a riverbank the bottom of a valley and when 15,000 guys come through on their camels and stuff is knocking around and they're screaming and they're like keep up keep up Gideon's coming you know and and then they pass through so these guys from Succoth knew that Midian had come through but they don't know that they're almost dead that there's there's just 15,000 of the 135,000 left they feel pretty secure and certain that they're going to be okay now this these guys are the guys that that uh were able to stay on the other side of Jordan. Remember Gad. So these are these are of the tribe of Gad, but they've intermarried and spread out, and there's not much there's not much uh, uh, the, the connection between them and the uh, other tribes. So they just let them pass right on through. And um, Gideon is not very impressed by that. Wrong direction. Here we go. So here is our timeline. So if we figure that the, the battle took a, you know, an hour and then the ride south took an hour, they crossed the river at about 1230, and then about 1 o'clock, they're 4 miles northeast. That would be in Succoth. So here they, they arrive outside the gates of this town between maybe 1 and 2 in the morning on their camels. Gideon's exhausted. They probably didn't eat dinner. They've been riding all night. They've been fighting and chasing these guys he stops outside the town, hey, throw us some bread, we're, we're in the middle of this, you're our brothers, no, we're not going to do that, and here is his answer. He says in 8-6, chapter 8, verse 6, and the princes of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zal- Zalmana, Zalmana? thank you, now in thy hand that we should give bread unto thine army? And Gideon said, therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Ziba and Zalmana." unto thine hand I will tear your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So he says to the princes of, of Succoth, they're up in the city and he's passing, he doesn't have time to mess with it. He says, listen, I'm pursuing the kings and I don't have time to mess with this, but once I get them and I come back, I'm going to tie you up with briars and beat you. I mean, that's awful. That's That would be a pretty difficult thing to live through. But Gideon is pretty upset here and he answers this very differently than he did when he crossed the river. I think it's because with Ephraim they were his neighbors and with these guys, I, I imagine these guys probably offered some aid to the Midianites when they came through. I imagine they gave them some bread, some water, shoot them on their way because they were on Midian's side of the river and because of Gideon's response. And he's going to come back and do it. 8-8. Eight, eight, and when he went thence to Pinel. He asked, uh, he spake unto, all these words work fine when I'm reading them quiet in my office. I don't know, they, they, it did not translate. And spake unto them likewise, and the men of, of Penuel answered and said as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So he comes back, uh, passes Succoth, and he rides another uh, three or four miles distance. And he gets to this other town going up the valley, and he says to them, "Then they're in a tower, give us some bread. And they said, what, have you already won? No, we have neighbors, they're Midianites, and they're liable to kill us. And he goes, I'm coming back, and I'm going to kill you. You're worried about getting dead? I'm going to get you dead. And then he rides on. So this is happening up here in this next little valley. This is Penuel up here, and he's continuing to ride east. So uh, he made it to that town, we're going to say about 1.30 a.m., Continuing on, kick them while they're down. Uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalminia, Zalmana. Zalmana, were in Karkor, and their host with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of the host of the children of the east. For there fell in 120,000 men that drew swords. So here are these these two princes. They're riding with their 15,000 guys, their camels, and they make it to this little uh, area where they would camp out. And this is about 12 miles southeast of where he had last asked for bread. So they get there around 2.30 in the morning. And this is right down in this area where they camp out. The name of that is just flat and soft place. So they had ridden up to the high desert. They're up there somewhere above uh, Rock City Petra. And, and they've camped out and they're exhausted. Now imagine these guys, if, if you would these soldiers they get down to this place and they are exhausted they started this night they went to bed whatever six hours ago and when they went to bed there were an army of 135,000 they had just had this victory over in Tibor before they got to this place where they fought Gideon and and they were going to destroy the land and whatever they should be sound asleep right now 35 miles away with all their army around them and here they are they don't have their tents, they don't have their stuff, they're, they don't have the, the normal retinue that they travel with, they don't know where their sons are, the the princes are gone, they're separated, they're looking who made it, who didn't make it, how many men are here, there's only 15, where are the others, because they've been running for their lives, right, for the last few hours, so they're, they're like, and, and they can't figure out who's where and what's happening, but they do know that they've left Gideon behind at this point. They do know that he is not right across the range from them with his guys setting up, ready to come in and battle them again, which is exactly where Gideon was. It says in Judges chapter 8, verse 11, And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jagaboth, and smote the hosts, for the host was secure. And when Zeba and Zalmanoth fled... He Zalmana fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmana, and discomforted all the hosts. So he says, Gideon goes up by their tents, and because they're secure, because they sit down, they sit quiet, Gideon spreads his guys out. There's probably quite a few guys at this point. They're spread out, they're ready to fight. as, as the kings set, settle down, he comes in and attacks. and and kills all 15,000. Now, as this happened, the two kings flee. I imagine they flee back the way they came, because he's quickly back in Succoth. So as they flee back the way he came, some of his guys are killing all of the the Midianites that are there, and Gideon is chasing them back to uh, where Succoth was. So I figure between 2.30 and 3.30 a.m. is mop-up. Now consider how much death has happened between now and then next week we're going to talk about the amount of gold that they got just from the earrings that were hanging off of these canaanites it was insane how many people they actually killed and so here about 3 30 in the morning gideon's got these two kings by the scruff of the neck he's got their camels he's finished the battle and he's riding back to sucketh About 15 miles to get back to the town where he told him he's going to tie him up with briars. And he gets there just before daylight about 5.30 a.m. in the morning. The 77 of Succoth. Okay, so Judges chapter 8 verse 13. And Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle before the sun was up. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him. And he described unto him the princes of Succoth. And the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. So he catches this young guy that's outside the city. It's daylight. The guy's going out to work the fields or whatever. He catches the young guy. And I imagine Gideon's pretty intimidating at this point. He's got an army behind him that just finished wiping out somebody that's ten thousand to one or something. He just he he so he's he's coming up and he's big, I guess they said he looks like a king. He's bloody, he's gory. He's sweaty. He's been riding all night, and he's got that wild look in his eye. You know that, that kind of John Wayne look. And he's and he's looking at this kid, and the kid gives it up. He, here's who they are. Here's where they live. Here's what they look like, and just let me go. And so Gideon goes and catches the the guys from Succoth, Judges chapter eight verse fifteen, and he came unto the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmana, whom thou did upbraid me, saying. Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmana Nile in thy hand? I think Gideon's like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we should give bread unto thy men that are weary, and he's kind of making fun of them while he's doing it, because here he's got the two kings that he said that he would go get. Judges 8, 16, and he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. <sighs> Ow. I think they learned that lesson. When it says briars, I looked up some of the briars. Now, I'm sorry, the thorns that were there. Uh, the the you wouldn't want to get touched by these things. These are big, nasty thorns on hard branches. Not like blackberries or something. Or these are rough things. And he, and he caught enough thorns to tie up 77 men and then beat them. Um, that's a lot of stickers, man. That's a lot of vine and. And uh, a lot of painful splinters and blood and just like. But you know what? Gideon's men that are with him, th- they had to love this. Because this is their commander that's sticking up for them. And he's ticked because these guys didn't give his men bread. Remember, it wasn't for him. He wasn't asking for a nice room. After this, these guys are like Patton's army. You know, th- These guys are, are like General Lee's men. They're, we're going to follow him anywhere, no matter what he says. And, and so they, they catch and they, and they teach these guys a lesson. Ouch. Judges chapter 8, verse 17, And he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. This is horrible to me. I, I have been raised without violence. Violence hasn't ever touched me. And I can't imagine killing a town because they wouldn't give you bread. That just sounds like the worst, most horrible act of humanity. But these guys were pretty awful people. They were offering child sacrifice and things before this and that's what the people of this area did to Baal. And and so as Gideon uh, comes into the city and slays everybody apparently God doesn't speak on this but uh, he doesn't stop him either. And so there's this tower that wouldn't give him bread. Now when Gideon, you can tell how upset he is because he passed this tower and went back to Succoth because those were the ones that he said he'd beat with briars first and then he tracked backwards four miles back to this second city, this tower and he broke the tower down and killed all the men that were in there. Now that's probably late morning, early afternoon by the time that they get done with that and then he starts speaking to the princes, I mean to the kings. And then he said unto Zeba and Zalmina. Thank you. What manner of men they, <laughs> what manner <laughs> what manner of men were they whom ye slew in Tibor? And they answered, As thou art, so are they, each one resembling the children of a king. So he he says to the guys, these guys in Tibor, now we don't have record of the valley in Tibor. Tibor is above and, and beyond where Gideon fought these guys. It's further into Israel's territory. It's where the big chariot battle took place with, with Deborah and Barak. So here we have, here we have Gideon up around in, in I mean, uh, Gideon's brothers up around fighting in Tibor. And apparently they lost that fight. So he questions them and he says... What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tibor? And they said they resembled you. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. One is they're flattering him. They go, you look like a king. And so did those guys. But it didn't work with Gideon. And he said, they were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. I find this fascinating. He's just killed a town for not giving him bread. And yet he tells the two kings, if you had done this, if you had not killed my brothers, I wouldn't slay you. The other thing is, he's not saying these were my brethren in that they were from my village or even from my father, because there are uh, the multiple wives with husbands back then. Gideon himself will have 70 wives. But remember, uh, Abraham even, uh, David all had multiple wives. That was a common thing. So you might have the same father, but not the same mother. But he's saying, no, these are not just close relatives; they're actually my siblings. They're actually the son of my mother and father, so they're they're full blood brother and sister. And so he's saying, no, they were my they were close. And uh, if you'd save them alive, I wouldn't slay you. But he said unto Jethro, his firstborn, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. So here Gideon turns to his son and he says, I want you to get up and kill the princes. Again, I cannot imagine doing this. I can't imagine pointing at my son Jacob and saying, Jacob, grab a machete and hack these two guys to death. I I would, you know, never ever in a thousand years, this is a bloody time with bloody men. And I think it's interesting that God made us in his image and his image protects life. And this young man is justly horrified at an act of violence, he has to be taught over a period of time, over the culture and the the area that's around him, to embrace this kind of horror and violence. David wasn't allowed to build the temple because he was a bloody man, because of the violence that was in him, that he did, that that was unspeakable, it was awful. God needed warriors at the time, and David was an awesome warrior and directed by God, but it warps you to be involved with that kind of violence. It warps your sense of what's right and what's wrong. And not just that, it warps the society. The young man that was had not learned to do this was freaked out. He wouldn't do it. And they saw it as weakness. I don't. You know, Abortion is more murder. When you take a life and you end that life, that's murder, and it should be horrifying. If you're in the room and somebody kills a baby, you, you, you should freak out. You should claw their eyes out. You you should cry and weep. You should be devastated to see death callously placed on an innocent infant. And our culture is such that we accept it. Our culture is such that it doesn't have the ring of horror that it should have. It doesn't affect us the way that it should. The number one killer in the world isn't cancer, it's not malaria, it sure ain't COVID. The number one killer in the world is abortion. It kills more innocent lives than anything that's ever been because every one of those lives are innocent our our culture says it's okay don't follow our culture don't accept it don't don't think that it's because it's legal that it's acceptable I'm not at all suggesting violence against the murderers God has raised up men that will bring justice to those that should be our society and if it's not our society It will be God. God said it's better for you when you're a young teenager before you become a doctor. Grab a millstone, tie it around your neck real good, jump off a bridge. That's better for you because if you offend these little ones, I'm coming for you. God says vengeance is mine. I will repay it. It makes God angry when we kill his kids. It makes God upset when we do that. And our nature, our very being recognizes that and finds horror in violence. But we accept it. Friends, don't accept it. Our culture is wrong, okay? Our culture is wrong. We should not be okay with abortion. It should be horrifying. When we see that picture online, it should take our breath away. I cannot believe that we sanction the death of 60 million babies in our country. So it should, it, it should be awful. And it was to this youth. Judges 8.21. Then Ziba and Zalmana said, Rise thou and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon rose and slew Zeba and Zalmana and took away the ornaments that were on their camels' necks. So Gideon is... is says to his son, kill him, his son is just, ugh. So dad jumps up, grabs his sword, and kills these guys. Now, don't get me wrong, we need violent men. We need men that stand between us and the wolves. We need that. I am so appreciative of our soldiers and our cops and the ones that stand between me and violence, but I'm so thankful it's not me. Gideon was that man. He stood before the Lord in righteousness and slew evil and stopped evil from continuing on and in doing so he stopped the sin that Israel continued to commit because they followed Gideon from here and then he took their ornaments that were on their camel's necks that word ornament is crescent it's crescent jewelry if you look up in in the Hebrew and what that was is a, a collar that hung under the camel's neck and it might be the beginning of Islam. Islam didn't come around until about 600 AD but but uh the worship of Allah well predated that. So these guys may have had Allah being the moon god, may have been worshiping him uh, as one. So this is the first incident we have of a uh, not a Muslim, but somebody that had Allah as one of their gods. Okay, I don't have time to get into the Gideon sin and the outcome of that, but uh, that that concludes the battle for Gideon. I... uh, no, we're going kind of slow through this. I could have zoomed through this. I almost did today. Hit high points and go through, but I just want to. Uh, I want to go pretty careful through Gideon. I think that it teaches us a lot, and honestly, it, I learned a lot from it uh, this week. It it, um, it adjusted and changed me. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have mercy on us, knowing our worst deeds. Thank you that you're the God that binds up the wounds, that you're the God that finds the, um, the horror in our lives and makes it a little bit less horrible. Thank you that you are the God that stands between us and the violence of sin and death and iniquity, and thank you that you are so loving and gentle to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be changed, Lord, to have soft answers, to love one another to be filled with uh, agape, Father, to be filled with charity. Lord, I pray that you would bless our day, and uh, Lord, that you would help us to uh, follow you and serve you better. In Jesus' precious name, amen.